And then he goes, my man, what kind of gun are you packing? And I'm like, what? What do you mean what gun? I'm like, yeah, it's a dangerous country. You don't have a gun? I'm like, what do you mean I don't have a gun? Why would I, why would I be on a bicycle and have a gun? I'm like, and then the, the gentleman was surprised. I mean, he, he called his wife and said, this man is riding around the US and doesn't, he's not like packing. Now, I was shocked because he didn't even ask the first question that should be asked, which is, are you packing? He just went straight to the point and said, what are you packing? Like, as in, it goes without saying that, of course, you're packing. What are you packing? Welcome to the Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast. I'm Matthew Piaro, and joining me is Matt Hansen. Matt Hansen, how you doing? Really good, and I'm not doing that bit anymore. I'm over it. Which bit is this? The whole, uh, welcome to Canadian, the Canadian, well, well, welcome, see, I'm already rusty. Yeah, wow, you're out of practice, and it's only been two weeks. Welcome to the Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast. I'm Matthew Piaro. Hey Matt, what's uh, what's the longest ride you've ever done? Like I'm talking consecutive days of riding. Like longest ride one? I think I did. I don't know, three hundred k probably. That's in one go. But like, say, what's your longest say stretch of riding in days? Um, I don't know. Like, like probably like every day of the month kind of thing. I don't know. I mean, I probably would take a rest day. I'm not crazy. Imagine riding for six months around the U.S., and that's what our guest today has done. He's known as Jawbig. Um, I would butcher his name if I tried to say it, uh, but uh, his, his first name is Jean Aimé. And, you know, I'm going to sound like I'm burying the lead when I say he rode around the U.S. in six months, which is pretty impressive uh, how much distance he covered. But um, he's also known for riding to Tuk Toyuk on a fixie in the winter. And so that's sort of what launched him into a lot of people's, um, launched him into the popular consciousness. He's also a writer. He's written for a Canadian cycling magazine. He did a feature on his some of his cross-Canada tours. And I'm really excited to talk with him about his latest adventure. Six months. That's a lot of riding. It's a lot of riding. But before my chat with Jaw Big, Matt Hansen, tomorrow is the return of the Grand Prix Cycliste de Quebec. Finally, after two years. After two years of pandemic-induced hiatus, it's returning. Let's remind listeners who's won in Quebec. It's a pretty impressive list of who's won there. It started in 2010 with... Thomas Volkler, and other winners have been Philippe Gilbert, Simon Gerrans, Robert Hessink, Rigoberto Uran, Peter Sagan, and Michael Matthews. What's, what's two days after that? A little race in Montreal. That's right. Again, let's remind people of who's won there before we get into who's going to be there this year. Winners in Montreal have included, again, Robert Hessink. And there was also Roy Costa, Peter Sagan, Simon Gerrans again, Tim Wellens, Greg Van Avermaet, Diego Ulissi, Michael Matthews again, and Greg Van Avermaet, he won, let's see, twice there. You know what, though? 
You know where Greg Van Avermaet has not won? In Quebec City. Yeah, even though he's been, I think, he's been second four times and third two times. You know, it's interesting. I talked to him the other day, uh, and, uh, you know, he really said how it's strange to him how he's won in, on Montreal, and he always thought the Quebec would suit him better. Now, of course, being on the podium a few times is 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 not exactly, you know, uh, a crappy day, but he definitely must be hungry to have that, to take that finally. Speaking of hungry, didn't he talk about bagels? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And I, I mentioned, I will mention it now. I mentioned two, I, in my copy of the story, I mentioned that he'll either be visiting one particular place or one other particular place. And I got to say, the comments about the bagels in Montreal, that was, that was pretty lit. There were some strong opinions. Um, but yeah, he definitely said, one of the things he's looking forward to is just being outside of Europe for a, a big race that feels like Europe and has all the European favorites, um, but isn't Europe. Just a change of pace. And I, I, that makes sense. And plus the bagels, right? Yum. You know what I'm surprised that doesn't get more coverage is poutine. Like, I want to know, I guess we can calculate this. I want to know how much poutine a, a pro rider burns through in, in one of those races. We could look at the kilojoules that they, they have, they expend. Probably just like one serving if you've ever had poutine before. You know, like you ride for six hours, you might get maybe three cheese curds, a bit of gravy. You know, I think it's like, it's a pretty high caloric food. I mean, again, I'm sure after doing those races, you could probably down a couple of those. But uh, yeah, it'd be interesting, kind of like measuring per pizza slices. Dear Zwift, can you measure my efforts on on Zwift in uh, poutine, please, instead of pizza slices? A normal poutine, none of this like chicken barbecue, you know, piro- I've seen pierogi poutine lately, which I'm pretty sure is sacrilegious. Just normal, you know, gravy, drowned curds and, and fries. None of this weirdo stuff is California poutine. <laughs> the poutine has to be created east of the Ottawa River. So in the current issue of Canadian Cycling Magazine, I have a very short story um, just looking forward to these races it was cheekily titled something like Wout is coming, Wout is coming, because for months now, it's been on his race calendar, which is Wout Van Aert, that is, which is pretty exciting. But the list of names that are scheduled to line up are pretty cool. The who's who, I would say. Yes, we have. Well, uh, Tede Pogacar is supposed to be there. And uh, for me, I think it's pretty exciting that uh, Biniam Germay, who won Ghent Vevelgem and a stage of the Giro this year, uh, the Eritrean rider. And that course, Quebec, I mean, that's totally a punchy kind of kind of course for him. I could totally see him doing well there. Yeah, that's right. We were we were just before we hit record, we were debating the uh, the climbiness of these courses. And uh, you well, you made a good point about what these the inclines of Quebec and Montreal mean for pro level cyclists. Yeah, I mean it's um it's funny we you know Montreal is a, is a long climb 2k or whatever but it's still it's not a mountain at all. I mean these guys this is just a blip to these guys. So when you talk to mortals like guys, oh man, it's so hilly. It is but it's not. I mean it's still a sprinter. I mean as we've seen some of the people who won it they're what we call sprinters. And you and I always make this joke, too, when someone says, oh, man, Mark Cavendish is a crappy climber. Well, no, he's not, actually. He's a million times better than 99% of the world. Just like, you know, it's just that he's not as good a climber as Pogachar. Yeah, and when you mean sprinters, I know you're not saying pure sprinters. It's like these, these courses don't su- suit a Cavendish, but like these kind of ruler types like your Avermats and your Sagans. Well, Sagan is pretty sprinty, now that you mention it. Um 
but yes, someone who has a, the ability to get over stuff, but still has still have a good finishing kick, like Michael Matthews. We saw him at the tour uh, tangle with some inclines, and he won a stage. This is the problem, though. I have to bring up my article again. Um, I was actually I was interviewing Sebastian Arsenault, the CEO of the races, and I was testing the idea of like, oh, look, you've you've been these races haven't happened for two years. And the people who were mopping up at these races, your Michael Matthews, your Peter Sagans, your Greg Van Avermaets, you know, they, you know, put on a few years and maybe they aren't uh, performing like they were two or three years ago. And he cautioned me, uh, you know, these are champions. Don't don't count them out just yet. And sure enough, this was shortly before Michael Matthews won (laughs) a stage at the tour. So I'm like, hmm, yeah, I guess we can't count him out. But I think that's an interesting point, though, with this two-year hiatus, you know, with guys like Van Aramont, Greg, let's call him Greg, because I always mess up his last name, Greg V. Oh, because, yeah, you're, you you and he are tight. Yeah, you know, Greg and me. Um, anyway, it's interesting, though, two years has been passed, or now it's 2019 was the last time, so there's a whole new crop of guys, as we all know. So that's what's interesting, too, it's sort of like he's he's gone through a bit of a, a, a time capsule, because now you've got these reverse time capsule, Pogachar and some of the other riders who were obviously around, but they weren't as dominant as they are now. That's that's what I find really interesting. Exactly. It'll be interesting, the mix of the old and new. Any bets? You want to you favor anybody for a certain course? What are you thinking? I mean, I think that Belgian fella, he, he looks pretty good. Um, I think I'd put my money on him for, for, I don't know, both of them. I think he could, could, I could see him doing the double if he's on form. I don't know which Belgian fellow you're talking about. Greg Van Avermaet? Wout Van Aert? Yeah, that's the one. Oh, yeah, I guess there's a couple of Belgian guys. Well, my buddy Greg, too. You know, I want my buddy Greg to win. Okay, I'm going to translate Matt Hansen to everybody. I think Matt Hansen just picked Wout Van Aert for both of them. Yeah, I think so. But I think, uh, you know, I think the weather could be a factor, too. I mean, it looks like it's supposed to be okay, but... Yeah, well, it's interesting because Tim Wellens won in Montreal on a crazy wet day. And um, and that's not to take away from his dry weather performances. But um, yeah, it um, that I remember that race. I wasn't there, but I, the photographers we were working with were we could barely get pictures. It was so crazy. Well, I think both races, I mean, Montreal is way more attritious than Quebec, but both of those, if the weather is not great, if the wind is strong, I mean, it can just make everything that much tougher, right? And just take it away. And, and it could be a smaller group. Who knows? Well, it will be good racing. And I'm so excited that they're back. I'm going to be watching those intently. Let us now turn to the feature interview for this episode. As I mentioned, Jawbig has done some very big rides. And he's also a really good talker and storyteller. So this episode is a bit longer than usual. He's a great guy. He can laugh at himself and his own sort of follies and foibles. He will tell you things like why he felt safer riding on interstates when it was legal than on quiet back roads. He will talk about bike uh, chondria or being a bike chondriac. Do you know what that is, Matt? Um, I have a feeling what it is, but I'm I'm too scared to say what it is. <laughs> And some of his stories are quite, I'll just say, straight up shocking. Like when he um, he met someone who wanted to help him buy a gun 
I'll just leave it at that. And he will unpack that story in this interview. So let's hear from Jobig. Jobig, who you are also known as Jean-Aimé Bigirimana. It's actually, my name is uh, Jean-Aimé Bigirimana, and I'm mostly known as Jabig. Well, you will be Jabig for the rest of this interview. About a month ago, Jabig, you finished a big cycling tour of the U.S. We're going to get into that trip, but I want to go back to your first big bike trip. In January 2016, you left Montreal, you went to the Atlantic Ocean, then turned around and went to the Pacific, and then you headed north to the Arctic Ocean. You were on a fixie. You rode through winter, and you started this trip about six months after getting into cycling, like seriously into cycling. Why did you do that ride on a fixie? So uh, one day I was randomly, you know, I just uh, I walked by a bike shop and I saw a nice bike and I said, oh, you know what? I've never owned a bike in my life. I mean, except for the one that my parents bought me as a child. So I walked in and I said, oh, I'd like this bike. And they said, okay, but it's a fixed gear bike. I'm like, what is it? They're trying to explain to me what it was. I couldn't get it. They're like, you know what? Why don't you try this one here? And then ride it around the block. I rode it around the block. I slowed down. And then I rolled over the handlebars because the pedals kept spinning. And I'm like, wow, that's a weird bike. But I like the feeling of one I felt with the bike. So I purchased the bike and I started riding it all over the place. And eventually I said, you know what? Uh, people had introduced me to a small app called Strava. They said, <laughs> ah, you know, you should should use that app whenever you ride and then log your distances. So that whole summer, I was riding everywhere. And the reason I had so much time to ride from Monday to Thursday is because I'm a professional DJ and I work on weekends, which means, you know, from Thursday until Saturday. So my my weekdays, I would just ride my bike. And and then before I knew it, uh, in October, I looked at this Strava thing and I said, total distance covered, 5,000 kilometers. And I said, oh, wow, that's almost from uh, Montreal to Vancouver. And that's where the idea came from. At the time, I was a little bit, um, I was feeling a little bit worn out and, uh, you know, burnt out from my DJ career. So I decided, you know what, I'm let me just ride across Canada. And the reason I took a fixed gear was because I was, you know, I said, okay, the one thing I remembered is the bike I had was a little bit aggressive. I didn't know what that meant, but it meant very sporty. I'm like, what do you mean aggressive? Like, the bike wants to attack me? But it turns out it just meant sporty. And, and, this, and I said, oh, I'm just going to get one that's a little bit more relaxed, but also one that can have accommodate wider tires because I knew I was going to go into places that were full of snow. And so when I went to the bike shop and I said, oh, can you give me that? Fr- uh, there's a frame I'm looking for. Can you look it for me? And they're like, you can't ride across Canada and fix your bike. That's silly. And I was like, oh, challenge accepted. So that's pretty much why I decided to do it because I was like, you know, this is the bike I like. I like it. I've been doing big distances with it. And and nice people said it can't be done. That's on them. They can't do it, but that, it doesn't mean that, you know, I can do it. So it was pretty much a challenge. And, you know, it was a, it was a challenge. Um, and the fact that people said, you can't do it. And then I went ahead and did it. Now, was it the worst thing to do? Well, let me put it this way. Now I'm a little bit smarter. I, would, I want to do it on, on a fixie again. I was going to say that. You, you ride with gears now. But how do you look back on your fixie ride? How do you feel about your younger, I'm saying, quote unquote, younger cycling self? Well, surprisingly, the only thing that changes, to be honest, 
is the fact that I don't have to plan my routes. With my fixture bike, I have to be mindful of hills and avoid them. Whereas now with a bicycle with gear, I just go wherever I want, you know, because I know that I have the gears for it. But when it comes to climbing, like it, actually when it comes to like average speed and everything, I found that not much has changed because the one thing that a fixed gear uh, is good for is that you just have to push down and, that, and the bike does everything else. Like for instance, I find that I don't necessarily climb faster or slower with a bike with gears because with a fixed gear, I usually get, I mean, I usually climb better out of the saddle. And I find that if, you, if you're climbing out of the saddle on a fixed gear, it's much easier because you just have to push down and the bike does, you know, keeps the momentum for you. But then, of course, the difference between touring on a fixed gear bike and on a bicycle with gears, with a bicycle with gears, I don't have to take sometimes off to rest my knees. And it's more efficient. But if I had to go back on a fixed gear bike, I wouldn't feel like it's a big downgrade or anything. You know, if anything, it's just a different challenge, you know. I would just equate it to driving a manual car, an automatic car. You know, each has its advantage and it's convenient. But, um, you know, now that I'm getting older, you know, a bicycle with gear is much more pleasant. After your coast-to-coast-to-coast ride, you planned an around-the-world bike ride. You left in August 2019. Months later, you were in Europe and the pandemic was shutting things down. You had to return to Canada. For that trip... And your recent U.S. one, you had a charitable component. You were raising money for World Bicycle Relief. Tell me a bit more about that charity and how you connected with it. So World Bicycle Relief is, uh, first of all, let me explain what it is. It's a charity that provides bicycles to children, healthcare workers, farmers in uh, rural Africa so that they can, you know, uh, so that they can get, uh, they can get around. Because um, some parts of rural Africa, there are not roads and, you know, there are no cars. And when it, for me, I focused on the educational aspect uh, area of uh, World Bicycle Relief because I hear that sometimes the reason why somebody doesn't have an education ever was just because school was too far. If you think about it, you know, that's not a reason for somebody to not be able to get an education. I'm African-born. I was born in Rwanda in 1979. And the reason I have the life I live, I mean, doesn't matter that it's a... I'm happier or I'm better than anybody else. It just means that uh, I come from a, I won the lottery and I, I was born into a family of educated parents who gave me a very comfortable life. You know, I, I went to the, some of the best schools and I had a very comfortable life. And it's not because I'm better than anyone. It's just because I had the opportunity. And for me, I see it as my duty as an African who has the privilege to be able to do what I want, to give back to my continent by allowing at least people to get to school and give them the opportunity of education, which opens big opportunities. So when I rode across Canada, I, you know, the first time on a fixed gear bike, it's really got a, a lot of attention. From overnight, I was like, I guess, a cycling star, quote unquote, you know, because everyone thought this is just crazy. This man who came out of nowhere and he's a DJ, you know, I'm like, you know, because it seems like people don't have much expectations from DJs. They're like, oh, and he's a DJ. I'm like, what do you mean? And he's a DJ, you know, <laughs> you know, so I guess... You know, and but also the DJ world was who's this DJ who's doing this stuff? So even DJs ourselves were like, But you're a DJ, you know. So it got a lot of attention, and I said, Well, that's a lot of attention that I could be putting to better use. Because I also found that whenever I rode, people would ask me, Oh, what charity is it for? I'm like, No, I'm just riding for myself. I just need to put my thoughts together. You know, some people walk around the block, I'm riding across Canada. So it's almost 
as if it felt like almost like selfish to be riding for no cause. So I said, okay, you know what? I have all this attention and I can get my own attention and still share it with a, no, uh, with a worthy cause. So uh, I had this idea of like providing bicycles to children in Africa. And, but then I thought, you know what? I know I'm a smart guy, but I'm sure somebody has come up with a better you know, concept. And I just went to Google and I typed uh, bicycle to children in Africa and World Bicycle Relief came out first. And I read about them and I was like, oh my goodness, they have figured out something that I was struggling with and I would have never figured out. Which is, if I took a bicycle from Montreal or from Vancouver, where I'm uh, right now, and I send it to somebody in rural Africa, I also need to send the parts because otherwise, if that bike breaks, it's pretty much become a dumping ground. You know, like if, if it breaks and they don't have the tools to replace it, then it's game over. However, World Bicycle Relief went a step further and they actually send the components to Africa and then the bikes are built there and they also service there which is, and the bonus is that it also creates extra jobs, additional jobs, because now there are mechanics and there are people who look after these bikes. And that was brilliant, you know? And I said, you know what? I'm just going to let pros, you know, like the pros handle that. But also I can barely manage my own life and I don't work with, I mean, I'm a, I'm a social person, but I don't work well with people because I'm too impatient. I want things to be done yesterday. I said, I'm just going to ride my bike and I'm going to let them handle the, you know, the bicycle so then I messaged them. I said, "Hey, this is who I am, and I'd like to do to support you." And they're like, "Of course." So they set they set up a fundraising page for me on the website, and then I started from there. So basically, I introduced myself, and if anyone out there is listening, anyone can do that. They, you, they can create a web page for you, and you can start for, on fundraising. And uh, twenty thousand dollars later, uh, you know, it's uh, that's you know here I am, I guess. So turning to your most recent ride. Tell me why you chose to ride through the U.S. Why did you pick that country? Like, um, like you mentioned, I was um, I was riding around the world in 2019 and 2020, but then the pandemic changed the whole world. And in my opinion, it also changed uh, touring, and you know, because the world changed, you know. And I know that it's going to take a while before the world goes back to 100% normal. But also, I'd given myself five years to do it. And the pandemic pretty much took three years away of those five years, you know, because I'm a DJ and when I'm I'm on a bicycle on this trip that last, you know, I mean, the shortest has been three months when I rode across Canada for the second time. And the longest has been when I rode across Canada for the first time, which was 15 months. And the one across, you know, around the world uh, was six months and the one, you know, in the US was six months. That's a lot of time. And it prevents me from doing things that, quote unquote, adults are supposed to do, like, you know, save and buy a home and meet somebody for, you know, like meet like a significant other because all the money I make, I have to spend it on uh, my trips because they're they're self-honest. And also when I meet somebody, they're like, where do I fit in your life since we've just met and you want to be gone for like six months? And then after you come back, you want to go on another adventure? With the pandemic, I realized that my trip around the world was pretty much over and I would have to scratch that. So I told myself, let me go on one last big ride which is self-financed. And I said, where can I go? And I'm like, okay, I can't go around Canada, across Canada for the third time because that's just like, then I become Forrest Gump. <laughs> and I figured, okay, let me figure out something else that's a challenge, but it's within the same comfort zone. And I'm saying, hmm, you know what? I've been in the US quite often and I've, I'm, you know, I'm well-traveled within the USA, but I know the big cities. Why not ride it? And the reason I came up with that, like, you know, it freaks me out. So if it doesn't freak you out, then it's not a challenge. So 
I said, okay, let me go to the US. It's same, same, but different than Canada. And as you see later, it's all different. It's not even same, same. It's just different, different, same. You know what I mean? And, and they decided, okay, the US is next door. And also, if there's like another uh, crisis, you know, like, a, you know, another like pandemic or something crazy, I can just cross the border versus catching a flight from Europe. And also, I figured culturally it's the same. And also, I have a lot of contacts there because I have a big, uh, my biggest fan base is in the US. But also, most of my, the brands that support my trips are the best in the US and, and the biggest um, social media follower are from the US. So, and then it's just, you know, the US is fascinating. And there's this joke that I like to say, and I'm going to say it with the most, and please, everyone, it's a joke. You know, when you live on the second floor and the, and the first floor, there's like a very turbulent neighbor. You want to go see what's going on there, you know what I mean? I want to get into the the differences you you detected or the the same same but different, the different different but same uh, a little later. But I do want to um just find out a bit more about your your thoughts on the route. You went on a counterclockwise route. You started in Seattle, went south, east, north, and then west. Why did you pick that that route? So, I actually started in Vancouver. And that's why I picked that route because I, um, so I moved to Vancouver, uh, in uh, March, 2021 during the pandemic, because Quebec came up with this, like, I mean, first of all, Quebec has a lot, a very long winter. And I was envious to see my friends in Vancouver that were riding in March. And I was trying, and I was falling flat on my face in Montreal on the snow on my bike. And they said, what are you doing? Just move over here. And I said, I don't have a place to stay. They're like, don't worry. We have a big house. We had the conversation on Tuesday. On Monday, I was in a, in a plane. And that's how and I've been to Vancouver ever since. So then when I went to, uh, when I decided to do the trip, I figured it's just easier to cross the border from Vancouver into Washington State and start from there. And the reason I went, I took the route, you know, from uh, Seattle, San Diego, Southern States, all the way to Portland, Maine, and then um, back uh, through the northern part is just because I left in February. And in February, if I'd gone the other way around, I would have to deal with winter. And I've learned my lesson with winter cycling. But also, I wanted to go through the wind. You know, in February, uh, the wind is usually, it's, it comes from the Arctic. It's always Arctic front. So I knew that the Pacific coast, I was going to have tailwind all the way. But, uh, but also, the weather would be a little bit better. I mean, yes, in Washington State and uh, Oregon, I got rained on. But as soon as I crossed uh, into California, uh, it was hot. And the third reason why I picked that route was because I didn't want to deal with uh, Arizona, Texas, and uh, Louisiana in summer. So I needed to do them in winter. And despite that, by the time I hit Arizona, it was already 40, 41, 45 degrees. And that was just in March. So I, won't, I don't want to know what would have happened if, I, if I'd crossed them in July. So that's why I picked that. Yeah, actually, that's why I picked that. It's just, it was, it was actually very strategic. Now, if I started in, uh, let's say, for instance, if I started my trip in uh, July, then I would have gone the other way around. Right. And I guess the drawback of the route you chose is that, if I remember correctly, you faced nasty headwinds on your westerly journey. And um, you even had to, to jump on a bus a few times because you were running out of time. What was, your, what was your time limit? What was your time constraint? I know you said six months, but why six months? So as Canadian citizen, we can only stay in the U.S. for six months. You know, that's why even snowbirds can only stay in the US for 180 days because you have to come back. But also the other thing that happens is that if you are away from Canada, uh, no matter the province, 
after six months, you run out of your healthcare benefits. So, you know, it's so it's a visa visa issue and also healthcare, you know. So that's why I picked six months. And that's why, I, you know, I guess I figured that now I have a bicycle with gears, I can just shift the gears and go faster. But then I realized, man, if you slow on a fixed gear bike, you slow on a bicycle with gears. And that wind, oh my goodness, that wind just, it just sucked the life out of me. However, it didn't matter which direction I went, because even in Texas, I still faced the wind. Even though I was going with the trade winds, I still got some wind in Texas. So I don't want to imagine, like, I mean, I'm going in a circle, so sooner or later, I was going to face a headwind. You know, that's just a fact of life. And it's just that I hit them in uh, the northern states. And But then I was out of time, tired from, you know, five months of hard riding. And I was, I mean... And there was also nothing to see. You know what I mean? Like, you just look at the only one tree that there is in the, on the horizon. You look at it. You look at it for like two hours because you're moving so slowly with the wind that doesn't stop. Uh, so I was like, you know what? Let me hop onto the bus, so, which I did. And by the time I was uh, finished my ride, I had one week to spare, which means that had I not taken a bus, I would have, I would have sort of like overstayed my visa and... There's one thing you don't want to do. You don't want to overstay your U.S. visa because it can lead to a 10-year ban, you know. And and the U.S. is such an important country, and I like it so much that to, I don't want to be banned for 10 years just because I wanted to prove a point and ride the winds of North Dakota and uh, Montana, you know. If I really want to prove a point, I can go to Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and all of them, and then, you know, try to ride in them. But I'm not going to do that because I hate the wind. And actually, I have to say, it's the first time in my life that cycling gave me mental health problems you know i was like i went to a, into very dark places because of the wind and i mean and i was like wow you know cycling is not supposed to do that so that's another reason why i caught the bus i'm like i don't want to associate cycling with something so negative and i know for some people it's not being a hard ass you know enough but i'm like yeah my mental health is important you know i'm not paid to ride bicycles you know it's my escapism and i can have my escapism being the the one thing that uh you know becomes like pretty much like my toxic abuser you know what i mean so yeah i find that striking because i know part of the reason or one of the reasons you did your first cross canada tour is to clear your head find some mental space you made the joke earlier like most people go around the block uh you went around the country um so yeah that that seems like you've just got into dangerous territory there with the the um the wind is making you suffer so much and it's also to me striking because in pro cycling we we the talk is always of suffering you know uh, and that's a, a refrain you hear so much uh, for the pros but you're not a pro so um you need to like you said manage your mental health yeah i mean i mean i love riding my bike i found cycling in 2015 and it's been my sort of like saving grace it's what i do it you know as an introverted person who has to be to live a very social life because my dj career is very social and i need somewhere to sort of like go and sort of like refill my cup that's cycling so i didn't want cycling to be like some something that associates with negative emotions and energy and to be honest before i used to never think about e-bikes but now e-bikes have become like now more accepting of e-bikes because i I told myself i swear if i had an e-bike i would have just popped the motor and i would have just you know because i realized i like being on a bicycle and the exercise is like a, almost like the third thing on the list. I like to, to be on a bicycle. I don't necessarily like to pedal hard like a maniac. You know, I did it because it's, it needs to be done. 
but but not to the sake of my physical health and mental health, you know, no no ways. And that's and maybe it was an important lesson that I needed to learn because I never really reached my limits, and I found that my limits is the wind. Give me the biggest hill. I mean, I've climbed the Rocky Mountains, I, I, you know, everything on a fixed gear bike, and I survived. But the wind, one you know, like three days of consecutive wind, and one week, two weeks, forget that. No, no, thank you. As you've mentioned, you're a professional DJ. Both DJing and cycling can be gear-heavy pursuits. Some DJs are really into their gear. Are you into the process of mixing uh, and, say, keeping a dance floor going more than nerding out on equipment? That's actually a very good question because it's actually, wow, it's actually very, that's, it's actually a night opener. So in my early DJ days, I was like, okay, I have, to, I need to get the SL 1200s. I need to get this mixer. I need to get this. I need to get the, you know, finest and this and that. But then I realized it's about the music, and nobody but me or other DJs care about the tools that are used. People are listening to my music. They just want to hear good music and dance. So focus on the music. So as time went by, I just use what at my disposal. Sometimes I'll even make if I don't have a tool, I'll even use my phone. You know. Whereas if I'm doing a, an event and the client has the means, I will get top of the line because the top of line equipment allows you to do more. You know, it's a tool. So the more you're able to do with the tool, the more creative you can be and the better the service you can offer. However, you know, I've done parties with things that are so broken, you know, so it doesn't matter. So right now I'm at a stage where I don't care about the, about, about the equipment in the as a DJ. However, when it comes to cycling, I find that it's, you know, because I'm not a comfortable cyclist yet, I find that I just like to get the best of the best because then I'm comfortable. And sometimes, like, for instance, people, there's this thing. I tell people that I got three flats, you know, in the whole trip, and my bike never suffered a mechanical. And they're like, but everyone suffers a mechanical. And that's just because I got the best of the best of the best, and it was brand new or, mean, or well-serviced. But I'm sure that if I learn to be my own mechanic, I mean, I can barely change a tire. I mean, to tell you how bad I am, when I'm, I'm not going to say when because I don't want to say how recent this was. I went to a bike shop to return my third pump because they weren't working. And they said, why are they, why are they working? Like, I don't know, it's not working. And then they told me, how are you pumping your tire? And then I showed them, and it turns out I had to turn the little valve first, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's how bad I am. So if I'm not, and I know other people say, why, why would you be proud of being such an ignorant and, you know, mechanic and... You know, and you're out there doing adventures, and I'm like, hey, last time I checked, I haven't called any of you to come, you know, bail me out. I'm not a good mechanic, but I have people's skills, and those are the ones that I use. You know, I can trump somebody to drive me to a to a bike, to a bike shop, you know what I mean? And then they're like, yeah, but you're wasting time. I'm like, yeah, it's my time I'm wasting, not yours, so let me be, you know? So I'm, I don't know a lot, so I'll get, for instance, you know, tires that I, I know are the best against uh, uh, sort of like flats, yet roll relatively well. I'll get a very good frame. I'll get a very group uh, group set. And of course, those things, you know, they, they're costly. However, you know, I mean, people are surprised that I only rode one chain for 13,000 kilometers around the US. I'm like, well, just because I picked the best chain. You know, I never had issues with my drivetrain. I'm like, well, that's because I picked the right drivetrain, you know. So it... In cycling, for me, equipment matters because I don't have the confidence to be, you know, to adapt if something goes wrong, if that answers the question. It does. But 
I've also heard you say that you're a bit of a what's the term bichondriac? Yeah. Tell unpack that term for us. Wow, you pay attention to what I write on social media. I like that. <laughs> so yeah, so for me since I'm not a mechanic, I mean, I'm on a bike, things are rolling, things are moving, things are twisting. Well, I'm not a mechanic, but I have a brain that tells me if something is constantly moving, it's prone to breaking. And I would rather, so I know it's going to break or it's going to get damaged. So I'd rather get ahead of it. I'd rather prevent than repair. So for every now and then when I would stop into a major city and I mean, eventually my trips, they get a lot of attention. So I would get, you know, mechanics, you know, like from the ones who are professional mechanics who work at the bike shops or people who work, you know, who own a fleet of bikes. And the rule is always make sure that the person owns a nicer bike than you because, you know, they take care of you. They're going to take care of your bike. And they will say, oh, do you want me to look at your bike? And I'm like, sure. And many times I found out that, you know, my brake pads were about to get worn, that, uh, you know, that my bearings were, were about to, you know, I mean, I remember before I left San Francisco, I went to above category and the mechanic told me, yo, you better change your bearings because you're not going to make it, you're not going to make it past the desert. And I was like, wow, thank you so much. Because imagine that happened to me when I was in, you know, Arizona in the middle of the desert when there's no, not even one house, never mind a back shop, then I would have been in trouble. So for me, by country, I'm like, you know, I expect that everything is going to go wrong, even if I know that it's the best, it's the finest, you know, I'm dealing with the finest components, but I know that things break and they're meant to be used. You know, I'm not one of those people, I don't abuse on my bikes, but I use them. So I know that if I use them, they're going to get used. So I get ahead of it by getting them checked out before, you know, things get critical. And that's another reason why I don't run into problems because I address them. Of course, the only time it doesn't work is when you get a serious flat. But, you know, that's life. There's nothing you can do about that. You have a solid presence on social media. YouTube was important for your DJ career. Tell me how services like Instagram and Strava have helped you in your cycling career. Um, I mean, let's just talk about, you know, the pragmatic element of it. The more people know about you, the more people know about you. I mean, that sounds like competition, but it's, you know, I'm going to sort of like explain what I mean. When I was running the US, enough people knew about me and that allowed me to get people to sort of like offer me places to stay. Like, for instance, in many times I would get somebody uh, who lived in Los Angeles and then I would, you know, I would stay with them. But then they said, oh, I have a friend in San Diego or I have a friend. And then the person in San Diego, I have a friend and this and that. Because then it's networking, you know, I have a big network. So I was able to get places to stay because, and the reason I say places to stay is because I don't camp. You know, I signed up for riding across the countries. I'm not, I don't camp because, you know, I'm a coward. I don't like to sleep outside, you know. and I also. I guess I need to have a shower and this mis- this business of doing a business outdoors doesn't sit well with me. You know what I mean? So, you know, I like the comfort of a bed and a warm shower. So I used my, my network, but I also used a website called Warm Showers and Warm Showers is pretty much catch surfing for cyclists. So it's strangers signing up to host you, but they still need to vet you. So when they go and tap in Google, who the heck is this guy? And they see, oh my goodness, he's, you know, like he has a big social media following and it, it adds a little bit of, it's a big credential. Now it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm a, I'm a better human being than anyone else. I could still be a jerk or maybe I am, you know, who knows? 
but it just means that it helps people to say, oh, you know, he has a lot to lose, meaning he, he's not going to act stupid because he has a lot of, you know, he's a public figure, so he has something to lose. But it's more like about networking and this and that. But also, um, you know, the elephant in the room is that, you know, I'm here talking about how I can get the best components and this and that. Uh, I can get them because they are supplied by some of the brands that support, you know, that support my trip by, you know, I can name a few. I don't know if I'm allowed to do this on this show. You can. Yeah, so, you know, I have like Shram, Zip, uh, Renehurst, uh, Brooks, Wahoo, um, Telfin, Lake, Rafa, you know, they all support my, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting some, you know, uh, they support my trip and they provide me with the gear and, you know, to do what I do. And I mean, I'm a nice guy, but it wouldn't happen if I didn't have the social media audience. And I do know that it's because for most of them, it's because I uh, I did do some big rides and also uh, look different and some brands want to diversify. And so, and that's thanks to a big social media, you know, um, presence. I mean, sometimes I get special treatments, like for instance, you know, back shops, hey, do you want coming here? We're going to look after your bike and do you mind just, sharing on social media that you were here, I'm like, yeah, of course. I was going to do it anyway because it's part of the narrative of the story and part of the, you know, I like to brag that I'm back, back a chondriac, so I need to show that my back is at the back shop. But if the back shop also got benefit from, you know, from the quote-unquote publicity and, you know, and they get to do something good, everyone wins. So, yes, uh, it does help. And that's another thing. Uh, you know how sometimes you go to, you get some of these rich people who tell you, oh, this is how I made my money. You have to work hard and this and that. You have to, you know, I started from the bottom and I got here, this and that. And that's like gaslighting you to believing that you're not where you are because of hard work. Meanwhile, they forget to conveniently forget to tell you that their parents funded them with like half a million dollars or that they dropped out of Harvard, which means that if you go into Harvard to begin with, you, you know, you don't, drop, you don't drop out of Harvard if you're on a, a bursary. It means your parents are paying for you. So in my end too, when I talk about my trips, the reason they go well, it's because I would be alive if I say it's because I'm a nice guy or because I work hard. The fact that I have a social media presence helps a lot, you know. But then of course, how did I get it? Because of the trips I do and the, you know, and the work I've done. But, you know, they go hand in hand. But it's an important disclosure to say that, you know, anyone's mar- uh, my, you know, mileage may vary. Just as if you are a very wealthy adventurer then you don't even need to social media because you can just you know pay through everything i think at the root of it it's like you are um you're a good networker and that serves people in all kinds of careers um and and also social media we've seen the growth at least in the last five years of the i don't know how you feel about this term influencer but i mean that's what you've become yeah, people. You have a good social media following, and people want to know what you're doing. Like you're actually giving them interesting stories to follow. So it comes uh, legitimately with that. Yeah, I mean, because I don't know the day. I mean, and this is where the whole influence thing. You know, people used to call me an influencer, and I used to get offended. Until one day, I realized, hang on a minute. I know six people, and and I stopped counting after six because I don't keep up anymore. Six people told me that they've bought an open frame thanks to seeing my adventures and for me talking about it they're like i'd heard of it but i you know 
I told myself if this thing is riding, you know, if this guy is riding across countries with it and he's doing and he seemed to be in love with them, maybe I should check it out. And then they went to ride it and they liked it and they bought it. You know what I mean? So I am not naive to know that I do sort of like influence people, but I wouldn't call because for me influences are people who are just doing pretending to do something but they're not doing it. You know, and it is true that in cycling, you know, some of these quote unquote influencers you look at them and you're like, okay, thank you very much, but show me your Strava. And then, of course, who says that it has to happen the way, you know, it's, it can be a job, you know what I mean? Nobody says that if you're riding to, to the cafe, that's riding a bicycle. It's better than sitting on the sofa. I mean, not that there's something wrong with sitting on the sofa, because I don't want people, I don't want professional sofa sitters to come and, to come at me and try to cancel me. You know, but what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, I do know that I do influence people, and I do know, but one thing I know, though, is that what I say, before I used to write what I thought, you know, I used to be, I'm like, I don't care. But now I have to be more mindful of what I write because I know it has imp- impact, especially when it comes to cycling. Like, for instance, I'm trying to find a way to tell people not to ride around the US the way I did it because it was dangerous. But I don't want to tell them that because I don't want people just freaking out and saying riding around the US is dangerous. There are safer ways of doing it. But the way I do it, there is no way in hell I would advise anyone to ride it the way I did it. Because I was pressed for time, so I would get into interstates when I was legally allowed to do it. I would take some roads that were a little bit questionable because I don't mind traffic. I'm a city person. However, I'm aware that it just takes one person on the phone. And then bye-bye, Jean. You know what I mean? So whereas I would advise people to just follow adventure, cycling, safe routes, and this and that, and take them, but the trip is going to be longer. And then the other thing too, you know, adventure cycling, they want you on small remote roads because they're safer. But they're safer for everybody except me, if you look like me, because sometimes you go there and there's some questionable flags flying. And I'm like, do I really want to be here with these people around? And I'm the only one on a bicycle looking the way I do and knowing that some of these people have a certain attitude towards people who look like me. And I'm like, you know what, let me try my luck on the highway. It's safer for me because that's my kind of, I feel safer. Because safety is in the eyes of the beholder. You know, if some people feel safe on small roads. And the other thing too, I'd rather ride on an interstate than on a small road because interstate have my own shoulder and a rumble strip. Yes, there's more traffic, but I have my own lane. On small roads, you have to really hope that somebody is willing to stop, overtake you safely, and then go on the other side, you know. And also on smaller roads, there are less witnesses. So if someone wants really head cyclists or the way you look, uh, bye-bye. You touched on a lot of things just there that um, I have to admit I was curious about from from your route selection, whether you were going to pick more scenic roads versus more direct roads, let's say. And yeah, to me, an interstate sounds totally unpleasant. But, you know, your argument for them, well, I understand your perspective on it for sure. And then I was going to ask you about safety and comfort and um well you spoke about back roads with flags that make you feel uncomfortable were there parts of the u.s that you were uncomfortable about or had concerns about if you were gonna as you were gonna bike through them well when i rode around the u.s you know people from americans to europeans to everybody you know from everyone no matter what they warned me about some areas now, I'm not going to list any because I don't want people from those areas to come at me like the way they did when things happened to me and I was complaining that things happened to me and then they were like, no, they didn't happen to you. And I'm like, I almost got run over by a car and you're telling me it didn't happen to me. 
anyway. But I was like, you know what? I cannot let I cannot live in fear. I cannot let people dictate how I live my life. Because, you know, I'm a genocide survivor. I'm like, whatever, you know, I survived that, I can survive that. However, with distance, I should have paid attention because sometimes what people say about some areas, they found it some truth. And by the way, it's in all the states. So let me just put it out there. There's some areas in some, there's some pockets areas where I felt unsafe. And then there's some states where I just felt unsafe in the whole state. Fortunately, they were a small state and I usually did them in like six hours or more. I mean, or less rather. And, and, but then if you look at statistically speaking, there were more chances of me getting hit by a car, even in Montreal or Vancouver, than something happened to me there. But the thing with fear and personal fears is like, you know, everyone has their fear. You know what I mean? I met somebody who said my biggest fear on uh, uh, touring is running out of food. I'm like, what do you mean? That's just, just, just a weird fear. I'm like, that's like the weirdest fear. Like you can just keep going without food. Yeah, but if I don't have fuel, I'm like, well, then you tough it up and then you keep pedaling. But then I caught myself saying, who am I to tell somebody that the fear is not valid? You know what I mean? So same thing here. Uh, you know, my fear, you know, was about, you know, me... I mean, the stories that happen in the U.S., they're not fabricated. And I know that, first of all, I'm a cyclist. And no matter what your race is, people hate cyclists. Motorists hate cyclists for the most part. You know, they cannot tolerate them. So everyone, no matter the race, the gender, you know, everyone on a bicycle has a story of motorists being absolute nightmare. Now, I'm also... You know, a black person in some parts where people don't like, you have issues with, you know, some people have issues. And now you're a black man on a, you know, bicycle and you, according to them, you are on their roads. And some of these roads are remote. Now, I'm not saying that somebody's going to wake up that morning and say, I'm in the mood to kill somebody. But sometimes you don't have to hand yourself over on a silver platter. And that was my, the way I sort of like functioned. And, some of these fears happen to be true. You know, in one stage, somebody followed me in a pickup three times trying to run me down, you know, and I hopped on a curb. And it's only when I took my camera out and I took a picture of the vehicle that he left me alone. Oh, my gosh. Now, I had people saying, are you sure it happened? Or, you know, and I'm like, I think I know when somebody's charging me at me with a car. Um, but here's the funny part. It happened in Mississippi. And I just wrote on my social media because I wanted to put it out there just in case something happened to me. I posted a picture of the vehicle. It was uh, blur. There were blurry pictures. And I wrote, this man in a blue pickup truck tried to run me down three times. That's what I wrote. And then the internet lost its mind. It, they turned it to the whole racial thing. They said, oh, you see it because it's racist and this and that. And then people, people in the, you know, some people in those states said, hey, we're not all racist. Why would you put it in races? Maybe it's because you're in a bicycle. Maybe it's because maybe. And then some person even wrote, oh, maybe it's somebody who knew you and wanted to say hi and kept coming back. And I'm like, what? And and so for me, I was pretty amused because I said, you know, if you go back to the post, which is still up there, I wrote someone in a blue pickup truck trust tried to run me down. It's all of you assumed because I'm in Mississippi. And you know that deep down it's likely to happen. You turn into a whole race thing. So why are you attacking me that I turn into a whole race thing? And I don't mean, and I never even mention race, but you're the one bringing up race and yet you're attacking me. And not only that, you are saying that I was not, my life was in danger. And yet I've just, I even fell off my bike trying to, cause I forgot that I was, I had panniers and I tried to bunny hop 
on the on the on the sidewalk, but I had too much weight and I fell over. So, but but fortunately, I fell on the sidewalk, you know, and away from the car, and and people were trying to like fight me up that it didn't happen and this and that, and that's one thing that annoyed me a little bit because I was like, I almost died, and and you also had other people saying, yeah, but you should focus on the positive. The whole trip was great, and I'm like, you know, there's such a thing. There's no such a thing as a near birth experience. <laughs> And there's such a thing as a near-death experience. Right now, my life was literally in danger. Somebody came trying to kill me, to murder me. And you want me to just casually brush it off? Yes, of course, it's not the highlight of my trip. You know, I keep telling everyone who wants to hear, my US trip was fantastic. I met people who were nice to me. I think for those six months, I was the most spoiled human being in the US because Americans took care of me and this and that. But it will be naive or stupid or even untrue to say that it was all, you know, if... 1% of it was not great, but then it also involved my bank, you know, somebody trying to kill me. I think it's only fair that I remember it because the last time I felt I had that feeling was in the genocide. When people came to try and kill their family, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the end. That's the last time I felt me being close to death like that. You know, especially since this person was doing it on a highway, on a busy road, in front of, like, with no impunity, as in, I'm trying to run this guy down and cars, other cars were just r- driving by and I'm like, no one is doing anything. And I found that to be shocking. So fears, you know, those were my fears and most of them were founded. Fortunately, you know, nothing else like that happened. I mean, eventually in Alabama had some incidents too and Florida had some incidents, but Florida was just weird because we had like Mississippi and Alabama and I, I can sort of like excuse it because I was on the road and, you know, they don't have wide shoulders so I, I just blame it on frustrated motorists but it just happens that you know the reason why i think it might be rest related was because 80 percent of, of the abuse i got on the whole trip if not if not 90 percent was in alabama and mississippi and alabama and mississippi across both states within 24 hours so the shortest places i spent the least time i got the most abuse over the course of six months you know sometimes they either really had bicycles or, you know, or something else. Now, I don't know. The person did not roll out his window and say, hey, you person, because, you know, who has a different color skin than me, I'm going to come run you down, you know. Then, unfortunately, they don't give, it's not like in, in the old Western movies where people say, hey, I challenge you to death, you know, I'm coming to kill you, you know. They don't give you a notice, you know. These people are usually cowards and they try to come and just kill you, you know what I mean? But Florida was interesting because, Florida has the best roads in the whole of the US. The best roads, and they have very wide shoulders for cyclists. And yet people were still like coming and giving me hell. I'm like, what are you doing? Get off the road. And I'm like, I'm literally not even on the road. I'm on the back, you know, I'm on the shoulder. But I just think it's just people frustrated. I don't know. But it's, I really can't tell if it was racially, you know, because if right now I had to like bet a million dollars on it and say, was it racially motivated? I couldn't tell, you know. Because I didn't want to really stick around, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't gonna flag the person down like, sir, is this because you hate me as a cyclist, or is it because you hate me as a black person? You know, I was like, let's get the hell out of here. You know what I mean? <laughs> Nothing to do with it. Yeah, you're not gonna say, what is the motivation for your hatred, please? I would just like to know that. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because these people, the most, you know, even looking at them, you know, looking at them is seen as, as an act of uh, provocation. You know what I mean? So you just say, okay, let me look down, let me focus on my business, and just keep riding, and I'm like. Oh my goodness. So, and then after a while, 
And Florida was interesting because many Floridians sent me messages telling me, please be careful. And what was interesting is that somewhere of these, I would click on the profile and I could see that, you know, they were like pretty conservative and, you know, this and that because American, everyone is political and they like to show it on social media. And I'm like, okay, I have people who are very conservative telling me to get the hell of Florida because I'm not safe there. After maybe three days, I made a sharp left and went into Georgia, you know, and which is a pity because I really was looking forward to Florida. But also there, the reason I really didn't write Florida was because I was running out of time. So I didn't really have all the time to, you know, to go through all the way to Miami and come back up. I don't have the time and people are telling, advise me against it. Let me just get the hell out of here, which I did. Because again, I don't want to be one of those people. I'm not a hero. I want to be alive, you know, because people forget that, you know, I'd rather people throw roses at me when I'm alive, when I'm not, when I'm not dead, because I'm not going to get the roses when I'm dead. So, and also I'm not a professional. I'm not paid for to do this. And so I, do, I should not be risking my life doing it. I really appreciate you sharing these, um, sort of the dark side of, of this story of, of your trip. Um, it's, it, I find it frightening and, and scary and, and I can only imagine how, how it felt for you. But, um, and I don't want to, to focus on this too deeply. I mean, the negative, let's say. But there is a, a story that I want to ask you about. You had your bike stolen. And I believe you called the police. Maybe could you tell us a bit about that, that story? So I'm in Portland, Maine. And I've just finished my... Because basically, I didn't, I didn't ride across the U.S. I rode around. So... My first bit was to go from Vancouver, Seattle, all the way to Portland, Maine, because that was one side, and then I had to come back. So I'm getting excited. I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I go to Portland, Maine to begin with. I'm like, I'm surprised. And then I'm getting ready to start the journey back. So before that, I went to uh, Whole Foods to get some food, because I'm, I'm like, okay, this is Maine, they have good food. I bring my bike into the supermarket with me, into the supermarket where they put the, tro- uh, the trolleys. And yes. I do not lock my bike. That is a fact. And yes, it's my fault. But the reason I don't lock my bike is usually I'm in small towns. Also, I figured I'm in Portland, Maine, and I let my guard down because in Portland, I got such a VIP treatment that I got carried away. Oh, everyone is so nice here, you know. And then my brain, I don't know what the heck happened to me. My brain, you know, I let my guard down and I need to get food. And the reason I actually don't lock my bike is because you know, you lock your bike, but then I have to take the panniers off. I have to take my GPS off. I have to take, you have to take, you know, and even if you lock your bike, somebody can come and take the saddle. You know, everything nowadays is just, you just need like one tool to take, to take it apart. So my strategy is always to have it nearby where I can keep an eye on it. But then I went to Whole Foods and I got carried away by the desserts. And then I come back and my bike is not there. I'm like, oh, maybe they didn't want it in the way because it's in the trolley, it's hampering, you know, so, uh, like maybe it was a, a hazard, so they moved it. For five minutes, I'm asking, oh, this, where did people put my bike? And then I realized, hang on a minute, I think my bike has been stolen. And I'm out there freaking out. I'm like, oh my gosh, what to do? And I'm like, oh, crap. It's happened to me again. Because when I rode across Canada, my bike got stolen. It was in uh, Burlington, Burlington, Ontario. So I decided, let me call 911. And then I was such in a state of panic that I said, oh my gosh, what is the, what is the emergency? What is the... I literally remember asking myself in French, because I think in French, what is the 911 number in the US? I was like, oh crap, the same one as in Canada. <laughs> so then I dialed 911. And, I, and to be honest, 
I knew it was over. That back was gone. Because I'm like in Portland, there's a big cycling culture. So that it probably means that the big, there's like a big crime syndicate that targets bicycles. It's over. So I called 911 and the responder, you know, she asked me a bunch of questions, you know, details. But in my mind, she was just asking me to pretend. Because at first I said, this is not a life and death uh, situation. If I need to call another number, please let me know. They're like, no, 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 no. Your bike got stolen. What's what's the deal? And then I described the bike. I said, it's black. Everything is black, except for the tires that are like gum. And they said, oh, and who are you? And I introduced myself. I said, you know, I'm a Canadian citizen. I'm running around the US. And, you know, I was about to head back to Seattle and my bike had just got stolen. And then I put it, and then I posted it on social media. I, I made the uh, 911 call at 916. 9.37, I got a phone call saying, your bike is right here. The police found it. So for starters, what happened is that I also posted on social media and I told my host, uh, my Portland host, that my bike had been stolen. So the kind of people of Portland, the police, like people left work. People left the work, you know, the workplace, hopped on bike to drive to go, like, you know, go around Portland looking for the bike. And then my host also knew where to go and the police knew where to go. And it's just crazy that everyone went towards the same point. And they knew where to go. And it's a place where uh, there's like a big... Okay, so this is where, you you know, I'm going to say what happened and I'm going to have to sort of like clear clear it. It was a place where there were, there were many uh, people who are suffering from homelessness and substance abuse. Because they knew they had to go there because it's the only place everyone thought of going first. And no one told, they saw somebody out there pushing my bike. Because... I don't think he was able to shift it properly because when I got the bike, I realized it wasn't the biggest gear and there was a big hill. So I just pushed the bike. And the police told me, what do you want to do? And I'm like, you know what? When I was at the supermarket, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do, I was praying for my bike to get my bike back. And I said, oh, Lord, I just want my bike back. I have my bike back. Nothing is, is missing. I don't want to press charges. This is a person who saw an opportunity and took it. I don't think this person woke up this morning wanting to steal a bike. I got my bike. I don't want to get anyone in trouble. But I think I did because they asked me what the value of the bike was and what was in it. And I had my laptop, so I gave a value. And I learned later that if there's if you steal something over a certain value, it becomes like something, you know. So then I told the police, listen, none of these people are sitting on these streets because they want to. There's always a story behind somebody on abusing of, you know, narcotics and this and that if this person wanted you know took my bike and wanted to sell it off to get a quick fix i'm not happy with it but i understand it and i got my bike the world can just go back to normal and hopefully this person will know that they just dodged a big you know they dodged a big one and they'll never do it again but also when i was a kid i'm not gonna sit here and be a hypocrite when i was a kid i stole stuff and people you know went after me and let me go off so if it's, if it's my way for me to sort of like pay it forward, so be it. I have my bike. The only thing that, that just messes me up is that this guy turned off my my GPS. So now, you know, I'm going to have to go back to the water and start again because, you know, if it's not so strong, Strava, it didn't happen because I don't want people to go 10 years from now. He's like, no, 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 no. Those five kilometers, you didn't ride them, you know? <laughs> you know? And like, that's the only thing that bums me, the fact that, and then... Your biggest worry at the end of it was your Strava. 
and he cross-chained my bike. I wanted to tell him that next time you shift, you shouldn't cross-chain because that's not good for the, for the, you know, for the drive train. There you go. You turned it into a, a teachable moment. Then the police are looking at me going like, like, really? I'm like, yeah, really. Like, let's just call it a day. And, you know, like now I just need to, I have to get to Seattle. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, I have to get to Seattle. That's why I was going. I'm going to Seattle. They're like, you get to Seattle today? I'm like, no, I'm not going to get to there today. I am riding my bike. And then I tried to get on the bike and I couldn't clip. I couldn't do anything. And then my host said, you know what? You're, you're still in shock. Just come spend an, an extra day in uh, Portland and just relax. And then and that day, so I went and, and just hung out and I, and I was chilling and I was relaxing. And it turned out to be a great end because I got my bike back. But I was really, really mad at myself, you know. But it, I mean, it, I wasn't even mad at myself. I was just frustrated because the one place I thought it was the safest inside the supermarket, that's where it got taken. And I was mad because these are very expensive bikes. And I do know that even though they were, the, you know, the brands gave them to, to me, I'm still responsible for those bikes. And also I'm on a mission, you know, I couldn't let this ride end because I didn't have a bike. And I didn't want to go and say, listen, my bike got stolen because it feels so responsible. I mean, it was responsible of me. And it's an honest mistake I was always on. And now if, you know, and did I get a chain? No, I didn't. But now I don't care. Now when I go to supermarket, I tell them, my bike got stolen in Portland. Do you want it to get stolen over here? And usually they're like, okay, just put it over here. Near the beginning of our, our conversation, we touched on the idea of what uh, Canadians and Americans have in common and, and maybe what their, their differences are. Let's start with a major difference you detected, or can you boil down a major difference between riding, let's say riding in the U.S. versus riding in Canada? For me, the one major difference is I really thought that Canadians were just American with healthcare and were just more reserved. But I will actually say that Americans are more sincere than Canadians because Canadians are polite. And being polite does not mean being nice. It just means you're polite. Whereas Americans, if they like you, they'll tell you. If they don't like you, they'll tell you. You know where you stand. With Canadians, you have no idea. And that sort of like manifests itself on the road too. You know what I mean? And I mean, I have a quick example that I like to share. One day when I was in Saskatchewan, I can never pronounce that word, and I was riding across Canada, I was having lunch. But because, I, you know, like I said, I, I leaned my bike against the wall so that I could watch it across, you know, over in, in the restaurant while I sat next to it. Outside, you know, I was inside, but the bike was outside. And I usually let, leave my taillight flashing. And I have very bright taillight because... You know, I'm on the highway. I want to be seen as far as I can. So my taillights can be seen up to five kilometers. And the truck drivers were actually telling me that, they, you know, that was good because it gave them time to make room to move one lane. So I go to the restaurant and meeting and then a lady comes up to me. It's like, oh, that's a bright light. I'm like, yes, it's a bright light. I got it because I'm riding across Canada and I want people to see me. She's like, oh, that's, that's very nice. I'm like, and then she's like, yeah, but it's very bright. I'm like, yes, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, and, this, and out there describing it and this and that. One week later, I'm again, I'm at a restaurant. I'm like, oh, wow, that's a bright light. Somebody else. I'm like, that's a bright light and this and that. I'm like, yeah, but do you think maybe you can turn it out a little bit? I'm like, oh. And then I realized two weeks prior, that lady was telling me, your freaking light is too bright. Turn it off. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, I never got it. it. Again, like, you know, four years later, I'm in the US or four or five years later. I forgot how long, you know, I'm in the US again. 
I go to a restaurant, I lean my bike against the window, and I go in there. And inside, right there, a bunch of people, oh man, turn that thing off, it's too bright. <laughs> right there, like, turn it off, it's too bright. And then I go back out, and like, my bad, I go off, and then I turn it off. And, I, and that, is, for me, that's one of the best examples, you know. I imagine after they said, hey, that's too bright, that was the end of it, right? There was like, we're on to the next thing. That was the end of it. And then I could go back inside. They're like, hey, where are you from? And actually, you know, some people wanted, you know, some people wanted to buy me lunch. And I'm like, oh, I'm okay. And this and that. And they were all telling me, you need to be careful out there. I'm like, that's why I have the light. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, I, and I have another story, you know. So I am out there. I was, at, I was at with one host and I'm getting ready to go. So I'm like, you know, putting my stuff in my bag and this and that. I was like, oh, and the man goes, oh, w- what are you packing? And I'm like, well, in this bag, you know, because everyone was surprised at how light I was traveling. And I'm like, well, in this bag, as you can see, right now I'm going to put my PJs in there, you know, the stuff I wear off bike, and then put my kit on, and then this and that. And then he goes, yeah, but what are you packing? And I'm like, what do you mean what am I packing? I'm like, no, just all I'm packing, this and this, and I have this and this. And then repeated, and I'm like, what the heck am I missing? And then he goes, my man, what kind of gun are you packing? And I'm like, what? What do you mean what gun? I'm like, yeah, it's a dangerous country. You don't have a gun? I'm like, what do you mean I don't have a gun? Why would I, why would I be on a bicycle and have a gun? I'm like, and then the, the gentleman was surprised. I mean, he, he called his wife and said, this man is riding around the US and doesn't, he's not like packing. Now, I was shocked because he didn't even ask the first question that should be asked, which is, are you packing? He just went straight to the point and said, what are you packing? Like, as in, it goes without saying that, of course, you're packing. What are you packing? And that surprised me because, and that's something I kept getting along the way. People asking me, and it doesn't matter whether it was like conservative people or liberal people. It was everyone was asking me like, hey, like, like, how do you do for your own security? And I'm like, and, I, and then one day I told people, you know, I gave them this example. I'm like, the thing with guns, and, my, and that's my take on guns. If I know that I'm, I can look after myself, I'm going to take chances and go places I have no business being. And when you go places where you have no business being, then the business finds you. And, and if weapons have to be drawn, you know, you're gambling because, you know, you're bringing a small gun. What if these people have like a machine gun or this and that, or how would you even know? Or if, what if like a stray bullet goes and hits somebody? And that's outside the fact that I'm actually a foreigner. I have no business even owning a firearm, you know, in this country. And people said, yeah, but if something happens to me, and then I said, okay, fine. Let's suppose somebody comes, sneaks up behind me and tries to run me down. When exactly am I going to have time to turn around, draw a weapon, and then fire? <laughs> and people were like, yeah, but I think you... And everyone was still like, okay, we still don't buy that. You still need safety. And some people wanted to take me to, you know, to... They're like, no, don't worry. There are places you can go. You don't need, like, you know, you don't need, like... We can just get you one and this and that. And I was like, I swear. So, so wait. Some people were going to help you go gun shopping. Yeah. They're like, we can, we can help you, we can find you. And then it's, like, it's quickly, you know, going to teach you quickly how to use it. It's, it's fun. You know, there's some ones that you, know, you, you can get you a tiny one that you can put in your, in your, because I had, um, I had some cargo pants and one of them had like a, some of my bibs had like rear pockets that like you can even put it there. We can get you like a belt that you can put it on and this and that. And I was like, no, I really don't. I'm like, so you're just going out there exposed like that. Wow. You're so brave. So for them being out there, being without caring, that was that was the bravery act. And that was like, wow, that was, for me, that was, because I've heard about that, but when it happened to me, I couldn't believe that. And I really thought people were messing around, but they were serious. They were dead serious. 
for me, I would say that was the biggest culture shock. Uh, it's been, I think you've been home for uh, a little, close to a month. We're speaking in early September. Uh, less, uh, less than a month. Oh, just less than a month. How are your legs feeling? Um, surprisingly, I'm not even tired. I find myself um, tired when I'm not riding my bike. Because then I feel lethargic. I feel like, I feel, you know, I was going to say I feel fat, but that sounds weird because I'm skinny. And then also there's, I don't want to sound like I'm fat shaming. But I feel like bloated, rather, actually. It's bloated, I mean, I meant, I meant to say. I feel like heavy and I feel, I feel like unhappy. So I ride my bike like around, but I feel tired. And the only thing that was hurting was my bum and my hands. You know, they were, you know, they were hurting. But then I guess, you know, it all went away. And the one thing that's a little bit hard is the lack of routine. Because until now, my body wakes up at five. And I'm not, I'm, I keep DJ hours. So I'm not a morning person. But at five, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've, I still have that PTSD. Oh my gosh, I overslept. I need to go somewhere. And I, you know, I'm struggling to shake it. But other than that, if right now I had, a, you know, I mean, I'm ready for another adventure because um, it seems like my body has forgotten how it feels to be brutalized by the wind. And I told the story of, of how, you know, it feels like maybe like I'm a, you know, I'm like a, you know, I'm like a woman, like, you know, who forgets what birth pain is. Otherwise, nobody would have other children, right? You know, because, you know, if you remembered how birth pain was, you would, all families would just have one child. Now, I said this story and then people said, are you comparing your bike ride to giving birth? What is that? And people were ready to cancel me left, right and center. And I said, excuse me, you misunderstood me. What I said is that the human forgets, human will forget pain. You know, pain, as physical pain, we cannot remember that. You know, we cannot remember how it felt. And right now, I feel that I've, re- I've forgotten the agony, the agony I went through in the wind. And I'm almost tempted to go back on another journey. However, I promised myself that I was done with journeys longer than, than one month, unless I'm getting sponsored and I'm getting paid to do them, meaning I'm actually drawing a salary because I moved to Vancouver right now and the housing market is insane. And if I want to buy a house here, I can't be on a bicycle all day. It's left to normal, but it's the, it's not back left to normal because the pandemic is over and I'm in a new city, so I have to create a new normal. And already, I can't even create that new normal because already in September, I'm going back to Montreal and I'm going to be in Ottawa and Toronto visiting some friends and riding with some people. And then in uh, October, I'm going to a cycling safari in Kenya because, again, that's one of the perks of being out there. They said, hey, do you want to go on a cycling safari? All the expenses paid. I'm like, uh, actually, I don't have the time. I was like, idiot. Of course, you have the time. Oh, yes, I have the time, you know. So I'm going to be going in October. And then on my way back, I'm going to spend some time in the UK DJing. And then from there, I have to decide if I want to come back to Vancouver because even though it's the warmest place, I mean, one of the warmest places in Canada, six months of rain does not sound, sound too appealing to me, especially if the world is reopening. So dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. We will leave it there. Um Thank you so much for sharing your stories, your perspectives, and your insights uh, with your with your humor. Um, that dot dot dot. I hope we pick that pick those up again, those ellipses up again, and um, we'll have another chat about uh, the places that your bike will take you. Thank you, Jabig. Thank you so much for having me. And that's the episode. 
It is written and edited by me, Matthew Pioro. I had help from Matt Hansen. Thank you, Matt. You're always welcome. Mm. Also, thanks to web editor Terry McCall. He's, uh, he's always lending a hand around here, whether it's um, riser bar bikes or curly bar bikes. That, that man is bilingual. This episode is produced by Adam Killick. He did the music, too. And also thanks to Ontario Creates for its support. Matt, um, with the uh, the Grand Prix races this weekend, and I got to take the Grom mountain biking on Saturday. I don't I don't think we're gonna get out for a ride this weekend. Sort of funny coincidence that you're saying that after last week, I mean, we were riding and we were riding up the hill, and I was feeling pretty good. And you said I don't want to ride with you anymore. It's sort of kind of a cute little coincidence that all this stuff is happening now. Huh. This is purely coincidence. It has nothing to do with anything I might have said under duress on a climb with you, un- with unshakable Matt Hansen. I don't like this new, fitter Matt Hansen. You told me, you said to me, I need you to get fitter, Matt, or you won't be able to work here anymore. You said that to me. I don't know why you say that. I've never said that. You know, your performance at this job has nothing to do with Watts. I don't care. I don't know... I'm going to ask listeners. I'm sure they've heard me say that. Why haven't you heard me say that? I, I I hear you say it, and then it just sort of... I know you're just saying that, but you don't really mean it, you know? It's sort of like, I, I know... Like, I'm, I can see your face right now, and I just... I know... So you're doing a little kind of thing, a little kind of twitch. I know... I got it. Wink, wink. Gotcha. Yeah. Watts have nothing to do with my performance. Wink, wink. Gotcha. Touch my nose. I don't know what's more exhausting, trying to keep up with you as you hone it down Jane Street or this repeated (laughs) conversation that I'm having this Groundhog Day with you. (laughs) All right. Well, I think we've reached the end of this session. It looks like we're done here. (sighs) I look forward to riding with you soon, Matt. It won't be this weekend, though. It's fine. I'm very busy. I'm sure you are. I'll be riding at 4 o'clock in the morning so I can be ready for the races. Nice, nice. I like how you're going to get your rides out of the way so you can watch the pros. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, Please rate and review the show. Ride safely, and we'll talk to you later.